Let's pray. We'll ask God to help us. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for opportunity to look now at your word. We pray that you help us to understand it and uh, help us by understanding your word to know you better, to know more about your word, to know about your, more about your greatness and to know more about the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. With many things in life, you need to get the basics right. You need to make sure that the foundations are in place. I mean, you can't go on and do higher mathematics unless you already know how to add, subtract, multiply, divide. You're not going to learn to write a really good essay unless you can construct a sentence. You're not going to play a good game of rugby or netball or something like that unless you know how to catch, how to pass. My, my old karate teacher used to know this very well, my old karate teacher, Paul Starling. People would keep asking him to do all kinds of complicated, advanced stuff, twirling around and jumping and spinning and somersaults and all this sort of stuff. But he kept on saying the same thing. He would say, if you want to be good at karate, first you need to know how to breathe. Second, you need to know how to stand. Third, you need to know how to throw a punch and a kick. If you don't have the basics right, he would say, everything you do will be done badly. And so, hour after hour, day after day, week after week, month after month, we used to go over and over and over the basics. This book of Genesis, it's basic stuff. Not, not that it's easy necessarily, but it's foundational material. It's basic to our understanding of God of this world, of ourselves, and of Jesus. This is foundational stuff, so foundational that we often just kind of take it for granted. We just assume it to be true. We assume the sort of knowledge that's here. But friends, it would actually be a bit of a mistake, and more and more in our modern world that wants to have all of the good things that come with right theology without having God, more and more, it, we need to um, not just assume the basics, and so I have to say, I'm really looking forward to these next few months, uh, next six months or so, as we work together through the book of Genesis. All right, well, let's dive straight in, have a look. We start off in the beginning. In the beginning, there's God, and there's... There's nothing else. There's, there's one God, and there's nothing. Think about it, though. Very difficult to conceive of the idea of nothing. What, what do you think of when you think of nothing? How, how do you conceive of nothing in your mind? Uh, I suspect for many of us, when we think of nothing, we think of space. Or we think of a, a, a vacuum or something like that. But, but space isn't nothing. Space is space. A vacuum isn't nothing. A vacuum is, is a vacuum. Uh, in the beginning, there wasn't God and space. There wasn't God and a vacuum. In the beginning, there was just God. This is before space existed. In the beginning, there was God and nothing. Well, how do you perceive that? How do you, how do you talk about that? The, the, the way the author does it is he perceives of nothing as this kind of chaotic, dark, watery mess. And the author uses two very important words. Um, very important words for understanding the whole chapter. If you're interested, they're two rhyming words in Hebrew. Uh, it's Tohu and vohu, not tofu, but tohu, okay? Tohu and vohu. Let's see if you're saying it with me. Tohu and vohu. Vohu, tohu va vohu. Uh, the NIV translates them as formless and empty. Uh, 
formless, that is, there's no form, there's no um, order, there's no structure. And then empty, vohu, there's, there's nothing in there, it, it, it's unpopulated. So that's how the author perceives of nothing, uh, formlessness, emptiness. And, and in the beginning, out of this formless emptiness, God created everything that there now is, the heavens and the earth. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, have a look with me. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now what the other now does is he, he pictures God's creation as a, as, as a working week. Uh, in the first three days of the week, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, uh, God deals with the formlessness. And then in the second three days, God deals with the emptiness. And then on the last day, God rests. Now, you'll notice as we go, two important things. They're repeated almost every day of this working week. Uh, number one, God creates by his word. God speaks everything into existence. And second, God's creation is good. God creates by his word, and it's good. So, days one to three, tohu, formlessness. Uh, day one, there's formless darkness. Thanks, brother, we'll go on, on to the, the next one. Thank you very much. Uh, there's no structure of day or night, it's just kind of, but, but God speaks, and he creates form out of formlessness. Light shines into darkness, day and night are formed, and it is good. Verse 3. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Day 2. Uh, there was just formless water. Now the author pictures uh, creation as kind of formless water. He pictures space as being sort of water above and it all just merges into the water below. But what God does on day two is he forms a gap between them. So and this gap is sky. So now here on earth you've got sky and ocean, sea. Uh, verse six. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky and there was evening and there was morning the second day. Interesting that it's the only day where um, God doesn't say that it's good. I don't exactly know why that is. Um, somebody was just suggesting to me that that's because it's Monday uh, when God's doing it. <laughs> anyway, day three. Uh, day three, there's only uh, formless, watery ocean. Uh, but God speaks and he forms, he places the water so that dry ground and plants appear. And once again, it's good. Verse 9. And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas and God saw that it was good. Then God said, uh, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. 
The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. Okay, that's the first three days. God has been dealing with the, the, the tohu, the formlessness of uncreation. He's formed day and night. He's formed sky and sea. He's formed dry land with plants. Brings us to the next set of three days. Uh, this time God is dealing with the, the vohu, the, the emptiness of uncreation. He's filling creation up. He's populating it. Reminds me a little bit of uh, when my daughter was little. Um, her grandfather, who's able to make things unlike her dad, her grandfather built her a doll's house. Quite amazing, but he, he built this very large doll's house. He, he created the form of the house and he gave it to my daughter. And then later, over the weeks and months that followed, gradually, my daughter acquired stuff to put into the house. Uh, furniture and dolls and so on, to, to, to fill it up. So first there was the form, the structure, and then the form was filled, it was populated. Now, the structure of this passage here is amazing, it's so clever. Right? The way the author does it, day four matches day one. So on day one, you can see God created light, day, dark, night. He built the doll's house, if you like. Well, now he speaks again and he populates the light and dark with the sun, moon and stars. And once again, it's good. Verse 14. And God said, Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights. The greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. To govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Alright, so day four fills up day one. Now, day five fills up day two. Day five matches day two. God speaks and he populates the sky and the sea that he formed on day two. He fills their emptiness. The sky is filled with birds and the sea is filled with fish. And once again, it's good. Verse 20. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. Okay, don't, don't put up the next screen, please. Let's, let's make these people work for a minute. Uh, so day four, filled up day one. Day five, filled up day two. Can you guess now what day is day six going to match? That's right, day six matches day three. So he formed land. Well, God now speaks and he populates the dry ground that he formed. He, he fills it with animals and finally with people. Thanks, you can uh, give it away now. Is that Casey there? Thanks, Case. Um, he fills it with people who he makes in his image to rule over his creation, and it is all very good. Verse 24. And God said, 
Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They'll be yours for food and to all the beasts of the earth and to all the birds in the sky and to all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. This is actually genius, isn't it? This is so clever, the way it's structured, don't you reckon? That the way that the days match and the way it's all built out of this little rhyme, tohu and vohu. Uh, Tohu, formless, days one, two and three. And then fill it up, days four, five and six, fill up the emptiness. Sorry, I get excited about it. I think it's quite beautiful, quite magnificent, the way this, uh, the passage is structured. Uh, and then that brings us finally to the final day. Everything is directed towards this day, which stands out on its own, different from all of the rest. Day seven, God rests. And he blesses the day. He's pleased with that day. He loves this day and he makes it holy. It's set aside for him. It's his happy day when he can enjoy the work of his hands or of his voice. Chapter two and verse one. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Okay, can you see what's here then in this first section, this first chapter or so of Genesis? Big stuff, isn't it? Uh, God speaks and he creates everything, the heavens and the earth. He creates form out of formlessness, uh, fullness out of emptiness, and all of it is very good. All right. Now, as I said at the start, we're going to spend two weeks on this passage, so don't get too upset if I don't say or cover some things that you think are very important to cover. There's next week still to come. And next week we'll focus on creation of mankind on the seventh day, structure of the passage again. But today, there are four things about this passage that I think we should think about because these are four basic things, four foundational things that sometimes we just kind of assume. So first we're going to think about God, a number of things about God. Second, we're going to think about God's word, Uh, Thirdly, God's good creation. And then finally, we'll think about creation and Jesus. You can see it on your your outline here on the right-hand side. There we are now. See where we're going. God, God's word, God's good creation, creation and Jesus. Let's have a look at each one in turn. So first, God. If you think about it, this passage reveals some amazing truths about God, truths that we often do take for granted, uh, but truths that are extremely important and foundational. Uh, First, 
there is a God. And there always was a God. God is eternal. He was there in the beginning. In the beginning was God and nothing else. That's, that's a mind-blowing thought, isn't it? God is eternal. In fact, as I thought about it this week, it's actually really interesting to think, how, how does time and space have a beginning when God doesn't have a beginning? What does it mean that God always existed before the creation of time and space? When, when did it happen if he'd always existed? Am I the only one who just thinks that's amazing? How, 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 does, how does it fit into God's eternity? Mind-blowing. It's also a good corrective, I reckon, the eternity of God. Good corrective to people who think that, uh, that we people have eternal souls. We don't have eternal souls. We didn't always exist. And we only do exist at any moment purely at God's pleasure. God alone is eternal. He alone has always existed. Uh, here's another thing about God. There's just one. God is the only true God. Again, you go, duh. That's not obvious to many people in this world. A lot of people think there's no God. Or they think that there are lots of gods. Or they think that everything is God. Or they think that they're God. Or something like that. Uh-uh, uh-uh. Monotheism is, is, monotheism is true. Uh, you and I are not God. The sun is not God. The moon is not a God. The stars don't control our destiny. I hope you don't read the stupid horoscopes in the magazines or anything like that. It's all nonsense. In fact, one of my cousins used to work for one of the Australian magazines and she was in charge of the horoscope. It's a large basket full of little horoscope things that she used to pick out at random. Uh, it's all nonsense. There's no other God. Nobody else is guiding or running the universe. God alone is God. Everything else just part of his creation. Everything else dependent on him. God alone is eternal. God alone is God. And here's another thing. Creation reveals it. Creation reveals the glory of God. Sure, creation has been ruined by human sin. But even now, as we look at creation, we can see something of the glory of God. The sheer size and variety of creation cried out. God is powerful. God is imaginative. God is magnificent. God is great. His eternal power and divine nature are revealed in what he has made. There's no excuse to say there is no God. It's just there. Final thing to say on this first point about God is this. God made everything. And that includes you. And it includes me. He made you. Okay, that was point number one. Creation reveals all these foundational things about God. He is the only, true, eternal, glorious God who made us and everything. Brings us to point number two. Point two. God's word. Uh, here in Genesis chapter 1, we see something of the power of God's word. God speaks and the universe comes into existence. God's word is powerful. If he says it, it happens. Creation obeys God. Again, that, that's, that's basic to our Christian faith, isn't it? Um, God's word is still powerful. It's still trustworthy. When God gives us a command, we ought to obey. When God makes us a promise... We ought to believe. We ought to love God's word. We ought to treasure God's word. We ought to be 
reading it and thinking about it on Sundays and in Bible study. And the, the fact that we have the word of God in scripture should cause us no end of thankfulness. That brings us to point number three. Point three, God's creation. Now, two things that are foundational to say about God's creation that come out of Genesis 1. Uh, first, we see here in Genesis 1 that God's creation is ordered and we see that it's good. Now, again, it's easy to take both of these ideas for granted, but they're both very, very important. First, um, the idea that God's creation is ordered. It's not random. There is one God who has made things that are in order. Do you know what? This is, this is in fact, this idea, it's the whole basis on which modern science, modern science works. Uh, so on your outline there on the right-hand side, I've given you a quote from uh, commentator Gordon Wenham. You can see it there about halfway down the right-hand side. He says this, Genesis 1 provided the intellectual underpinning of the scientific enterprise. Uh, science's assumption of unity and order rests on Genesis 1's assertion of the one almighty God who created and controls the world according to a coherent plan. Only such an assumption can justify the experimental method. Do, do you understand what he's saying there? We just take this for granted. But imagine you do an experiment. Okay? You put a rock in water and it sinks. Okay? You do it again, put the rock in the water and it sinks again. Now, if you're Western thinker or a scientist, you, you say that you've proved something. You've proved that this kind of rock sinks in this kind of water. But how can you say that? How have you proved anything? If this world is just a matter of chance, you haven't proved anything. If this world is just a matter of uh, chance, if it's not ordered, then next time the rock might float. Or, or next time it might turn into a monster and bite you. The, the, the whole notion that you can draw inferences from repeated events, it rests on the idea that creation is ordered. And the only reason it's ordered is because God ordered it. It didn't get that way by accident. It's built on Genesis chapter 1. Now, many people today, they seem to think that science disproves theology or disproves Genesis 1 or something like that. The reality is the complete opposite. Without the theology of Genesis 1, you can't have science. It doesn't work. It doesn't exist. As Wenham puts it, continuing on your outline, were this world controlled by a multitude of capricious deities or subject to mere chance, no consistency could be expected in experimental results and no scientific laws could be discovered. Isn't that interesting? Creation is ordered. Also, we see from Genesis chapter 1 that creation is good. There's something that a lot of religious people get wrong and more and more in a kind of new agey stuff I'm seeing people get this wrong as well. People seem to think that creation is somehow a bad thing, that if you want to be really spiritual, if you want to be really religious, really holy, you have to somehow transcend the mere stuff of this world. Have you known people like that? They think they're holy because they're vegetarians or something like that. Um, or they think they're holy because they abstain from certain rituals, uh, you know, no meat on Fridays or whatever. Or they think they're more holy because they stay single or they live in a monastery or, or something like that. Uh, Mark Driscoll memorably puts it like this. He talks about religious people who, and I quote, deny themselves worldly pleasures and live a minimal, miserable, miserly life. 
as if that's more religious somehow. The Bible says it's wrong, wrong way of thinking. In fact, the Bible says it's demonic teaching. On your outline there from the Apostle Paul's letter to Timothy, Paul says, Some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. What truth? For everything God created is good. Where does that truth come from? Everything God created is good. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Friends, creation is fallen, but it's not inherently evil. Food, good. Marriage and sex, good. In, in the first service, when I said food was good, my wife cheered. And then I said marriage and sex, she was deadly silent. Um, that, uh, <laughs> missed her cue. Um, family, good. Sport, good. Fashion, art, money, good. Sand between your toes, good. A hot bath, good. Mud between your fingers, good. The stuff of this world is good. God made it good. He's given it to us to enjoy, not to idolise, not to replace him, but to enjoy with thanks to him. I reckon your life will be greatly enriched if you get this basic idea from Genesis chapter 1. It was good. Okay, we thought about God. We thought about God's word. We thought about creation. Final point is this. Point number four, creation and Jesus. Uh, creation gives us the foundational background to understand why Jesus came. It's, it's one of the basics. It's one of the building blocks for understanding the gospel, the good news about Jesus. Here's the thing. God made us. God made us. And, and that means God is our owner it's like if an author writes a book if they write it they own it they have a moral right of ownership have you ever read that in the beginning of a book the author asserts their moral right of ownership they wrote it it's theirs it's what we call copyright well in a similar way god made us that means god owns us and it means if god says we should love him and worship him we should we Owe it to him. He deserves it. He's worthy of it. Uh, as it says in Revelation chapter 4, there on your outline, you are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. That's what we owe to God. That, that, that's what he deserves as our maker, it's what he's worthy of, all glory, honour and power. But friends, the reality is, none of us give God what we owe him. We all ignore God. We even disobey God in our thoughts and words and actions and in what we fail to do. Uh, creation shows us what we owe to God, but we don't give what we owe. It means we're in trouble with God. It means we deserve God's judgment. And friends, that's exactly why Jesus came into this world. That's why he came to live and die and rise again, to fix this problem, to pay this debt. But by his life and death and resurrection, Jesus has paid the price that we owe to God. He has worshipped and obeyed God on our behalf perfectly. So now we can be forgiven. 
And so now we can have a part in God's new creation when Jesus returns. Can you see how important creation is? Foundational background to the good news about Jesus. It establishes our obligation to God as our maker, an obligation that is only met through Jesus. Okay, friends, sorry if on the one hand that was complicated, there's so much to say. Sorry, on the, other hand, on the other hand, if I haven't said things that you really want me to say, there's another week coming, okay? So don't panic. There's so much more to say about this passage. We will come to back, back to it next week. But these things we've looked at today, they're, they're important concepts, aren't they? They're, they are foundational for knowing who God is, uh, for knowing about his word, for knowing about his ordered and good creation, and, and, uh, and ultimately for knowing the magnificent news about the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we praise you because you made us and everything. In the beginning was you and nothing. It's all come about by your word. You are the maker, you are the owner of everything and of us. Heavenly Father, we say that you are worthy of all our glory and honour and, and you deserve to have power in our lives. We should obey you because you made everything. Father, thank you so much for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that through him, we can be forgiven for our failure to give you the love and honour that you deserve. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you help us to always trust the Lord Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name.